COVID-19 slowed our world down in unthinkable ways. Empty airports, quiet highways. This meant fewer planes and cars spewing CO2. As a result, carbon emissions in 2020 fell for the first time in decades, but they're on the rise again. We are seeing a strong rebound of coal consumption, mainly driven by Asia, but also uh, in the United States. So what on earth can we do about climate change? And how can technology help clean up the planet? That's today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Avram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. Okay, so Brian, global emissions fell 6.4% last year because of the pandemic. And I know this sounds like a lot, but it's not even enough to meet what scientists say needs to happen each year for the next decade, just to reach the goal set by the Paris Agreement in 2015. I think actually the the specific number is emissions need to drop by 7.6% annually every year for 10 years, which is really a tall order. We are seeing some dramatic movement right now. We're seeing big companies and important industries that contribute to emissions, you know, taking huge steps. General Motors said that by 2035, it will stop building gas-powered cars. Ford says that by 2025, it will have spent $22 billion developing electric vehicles. You know, and these are huge milestones for them to set because gasoline-powered cars are a huge contributor to carbon emissions. The electric vehicle market is kind of the sexy place to look for innovation in this area, but it's also popping up in some more unlikely areas like concrete. Concrete? Tell me more. (laughs) I know you think of concrete as sexy, and it kind of is because here's a fact about concrete. It's everywhere. It's the second most used material on earth after water. So there's huge potential. You just blew my mind. It's cheap. It's durable. It doesn't rust. It doesn't rot. It doesn't require highly skilled labor. It's also made from limestone, and limestone's everywhere. That was Rob Niven. He's the CEO and founder of Carbon Cure Technologies. His company helps producers make concrete that produces less carbon. You would think I would know the answer to this question because I have read so many kids' books about construction sites. But I'm going to ask the question on everybody's mind. What is concrete? Is it the same as cement? No, it is not. Concrete is crushed up rock, sand, and water mixed with cement. The cement is what glues everything together. Cement is really carbon intensive to make. You have to heat up limestone really hot to like 1500 degrees, and that releases a ton of CO2. Somewhere between eight to 10% of global emissions each year come from cement. Inherently, there's this one chemical reaction we just can't quite seem to kick, and that's where this limestone is turned into lime or clinker as it's called in the industry where you actually start with one pound of limestone and you break that into half a pound of clinker and half a pound of CO2. Then you multiply that out by, you know, four or five billion tons of CO2 that you're creating every year. Then all of a sudden you've got a lot of CO2 that you got to figure out what to do with. Michal, if you think about it, you know, the size and, and scale of this challenge is really amazing. But Rob has found a way to tackle this challenge and take advantage, actually, of all this concrete being used. His company mixes the carbon 
back in with the concrete in the process of making it. So it actually helps the cement perform better. It makes better concrete. So before where you had four ingredients, now you have five. And there's a tank of CO2 on site at any one of these 300 plus concrete plants that we serve that then now are consuming that CO2 and turning that CO2 back into a rock during the concrete mixing process. And in doing so, it's creating a very fine nanomaterial. And that nanomaterial is what provides concrete with all of these economic and strength benefits. And having that allows you to even use less cement. So Brian, where are they actually getting the CO2 from? Is this like a larger than life soda stream machine that's being distributed to the construction sites? That's quite a vision. Uh, they're basically getting it from anybody who will sell it. Um, in a lot of cases, Rob says, they'll get it from industrial plants that are producing ammonia or ethanol and producing CO2 in the process. And so instead of releasing that carbon back into the air, you know, Rob comes in and takes it, puts it into the concrete, and it's trapping it there forever. So that's good for the climate uh, because you're using less cement in the concrete mix. And the CO2 that you're adding into the concrete is stored for as long as the building is standing there. The CO2 we're putting into concrete is going to be a mineral. It, it is locked away for geological timescales, right? That's really important to put it into long-term, like geological, permanent storage. That's the holy grail. So this kind of innovation that is really good for the environment, theoretically, and also for the bottom line, theoretically, this is exactly the type of thing that our next guest would be interested in. Andrew Beebe is a managing director with Obvious Ventures. It's an early stage venture firm that's focused on disrupting trillion dollar industries. And the interesting thing about Andrew is that he was also around for the first wave of so-called green tech companies early on in the 2000s, when a lot of these you know, solar companies in particular were trying to get off the ground, and a lot of them were just too early for their time. So we wanted to talk to Andrew to hear what's different today. You know, I started a solar company in 2003 with Bill Gross in Los Angeles at Idealab. And, and when we were out talking to investors, climate change was just barely on people's radar, right? Al Gore certainly knew about it, but his movie wasn't even out then. This was just the beginning of the, the popular understanding of what we were really entering into in terms of an existential crisis. And the impact of climate change was really not shown. It was it was modeled. It was something that academics could study and, and talk about, but it was a faraway thing. Secondly, people, c consumers and corporations were not really understanding what their role in that could be, both in causing it, but also in modifying it. And third, that the technologies were not really viable at that point. Uh, when I got into solar, the cost of a solar panel was really somewhere around $10 a watt, and now we're getting close to 20 cents a watt today. It's just cheaper than virtually any other source of power generation out there because, of course, it has no fuel. That's just one example, but when you look across the fields, whether it's the uh, viability of batteries for electric vehicles or uh, new ways to think about regenerative ag and making that cost-effective or ways to think about water desalinization and making that cost-effective, all of those tools were really not uh, mature yet. And that's a big reason why we couldn't quite get there last time around. So 
I feel like almost every week lately we're hearing from another Fortune 500 company that's, you know, pledging to go carbon neutral by X date and setting all of these, you know, goals, really ambitious goals. What actually needs to happen to get there and what ways does technology play a role in getting us there? Around the time of the Paris Accord, you know, we saw corporations starting to step up and say, you know what, if policy is not going to lead us, we will take the initiative ourselves. I think they did that partially because many of them truly understood what was coming and they wanted to make sure that they could play a role. Another part was that their shareholders and their consumers were telling them, you have to do this now. And that's really different from 10 years ago. So they started making these commitments, as you outlined. And now I think they're coming to the many of them are coming to the realization that they have to deliver on it. Industry leaders like Microsoft and Google definitely got ahead of this a while ago. And they're, I would say, sort of at the top of the class in terms of their ability to articulate what their carbon impact is and figure out how to mitigate it. So there's a lot of software that these companies are going to need and are starting to use to manage their carbon footprint. First, you have to account for it. So there's literally accounting packages for carbon footprint but then you have to manage your carbon impact down. And to do that, there are now a budding class of software, enterprise-grade software packages that are helping companies do that just as a, a matter of course, as opposed to hiring somebody else to come in and do it at a much higher cost. Can you talk a little bit about your own portfolio company, some of the investments that you've made and how they fit into what you're talking about? Sure. I mean, we can start with mobility. I, I think you know, we saw six or seven years ago the wholesale transition of anything that combusts is going to become electrified. And and that has become easier and easier for people to understand and digest. But we said back then we meant anything, like if you're talking about aviation or uh, marine or trains or, or cars or scooters. And, and over that period of time, we've seen a lot of transition take place. So we were investors back then in Proterra, the electric bus company which has recently started to enter the public market through a SPAC. And we then followed up quickly with an investment in Lilium, which is a vertical takeoff and landing electric air taxi. So uh, flying cars, you know, which people talk about as the, the dream of venture capital in Silicon Valley for a long, long time. So I have to stop you because you had me at flying cars. Have you been in one? What does it look like? And how does this solve some of the planet's problems? I've sat in them. I have not flown in them. We're really trying to replace, uh, in the case of Lily, I'm trying to replace city to city transit between, say, in, here in California, a city like San Jose and San Francisco. You could make that a 15 minute ride instead of an hour long Uber ride, zero emission and about the cost of an Uber, which is pretty transformational. It really changes the way we think about moving between cities, not not so much within cities. And that's all zero carbon. And if you had to describe it visually to somebody, is it like a little helicopter? What does it look like? Yeah, you could think of it as a, um, it's a helicopter replacement, much quieter than a helicopter. And of course, uh, no emissions and a lot safer. They're sort of like large scale drones in the sense that uh, they are self-stabilizing and effectively fly themselves versus a helicopter, which is an extraordinary feat of engineering. But is one of the more dangerous ways to move through the sky, for sure. We keep seeing all sorts of really depressing predictions that as fast as we try to move now and 
even if the regulatory side of things speeds up as well to help propel us in a certain direction, that it's too little too late. As an investor, you have to be super optimistic. So where do you get your optimism from? Let's see. I, I think there's a Bill Gates quote. I'm sure a lot of people have said it, that we always overestimate what we can do in two years and underestimate what we can do in 10 years. If you had said to somebody 10 years ago, we will within 10 years be banning the sale of combustion vehicles, you would have said, wow, that's crazy. And then, and then if you had said, yeah, and Volkswagen and GM are going to commit to never making combustion vehicles again. You would not believe that, right? And now I think what we're going to find is that these companies are actually going to get to those targets sooner than they've laid out so far. We saw this with Google getting, you know, committing to 100% renewable power and then beating the target by, I think, three years. Again and again, once we really set out those goals, understand what it takes to hit them, we can actually get there faster than we think. Do you see any commonalities among the entrepreneurs that you're investing in? Like, There are so many different areas that are really high growth in tech right now, and it's just touching everything across all sectors, right? What do you see as the, the thing that hooks entrepreneurs to go into this particular space? Yeah. I mean, one of the other big differences between now and 10 years ago is the mindset of younger people or people entering the workforce, I believe a lot of the transformation we've seen at Amazon in terms of their commitment to the climate, which is very real, but fairly recent, was driven deeply by their employees who were asking for this change and starting to recognize it within their consumers and then pushing it from within. I think you'll see that again and again, because people given a choice more and more want to work at places that align with their values. And more and more for the next generation, values are very tied to climate because of that existential concern. As far as startups are concerned, I think it's very similar. We, you know, people tend to want to start companies because they see a problem or they want to solve something or they see an opportunity within one of those problems. And there are really very few uh, opportunity sets as big as the transformation of decarbonizing the entire planet. And so for the first time, we're, we're really seeing that alignment of, hey, there's a great way to build great businesses, make a ton of money, and live deeply within my value set. And that happens to coincide with that awakening of a younger generation around climate. Paul, we've already thrown around a lot of stats so far today, but I've got one more for you, okay? Ready. 43%. That's the amount that electric vehicle sales jumped in 2020, even though overall car sales slumped by a fifth during the pandemic last year. And, you know, a lot of that is Tesla, the success of Tesla and the increase in their production. But as we already talked about, the big global automakers are all switching their business models to focus on electric cars. President Biden and his proposed infrastructure plan has talked about building electric charging stations, a whole network around the United States. So the momentum is all headed in this direction in China, in Europe, in the US of switching over our fleet of cars globally to electric cars. But with all of those 
new electric cars being made, new batteries are also being made, lithium ion batteries. And that presents another environmental challenge because what do you do with those batteries once their lifespan is done, right? So our next guest is J.B. Straubel. And speaking of Tesla, he was actually one of the co-founders of Tesla. And He's now the CEO and co-founder of another company called Redwood Materials. And what they do is they scrap battery materials. They recover the critical elements involved with making batteries work. And they put those back into the supply chain. This isn't your your first company, obviously, um, but where did the idea come from? What is the problem that you are trying to solve here? And how did your earlier company, Tesla, inform what you do today? There's, I'd say, two main problems that we're aiming to solve. And one is the end of life issue with lithium ion batteries and all their forms. And in particularly the end of life issue with EV batteries. We, we have a positive environmental impact on sort of both ends of the, the spectrum, which is really cool because we're minimizing, avoiding you know, any environmental harm of disposing of these materials. But the bigger thing is that when you recycle, just like when you recycle a, an aluminum can, you, you consume a lot less energy and a lot less emissions are generated than when you, you know, go and dig up you know, a certain ore deposit and concentrate it and refine it and make those materials from scratch. And all of that came into focus, I'd say, you know, more and more clearly for me over the years at Tesla as we grew in scale and scope and for me, it was just very important to work kind of on the next generation problems and make sure that we kind of laid a foundation so that electrification could continue really all the way to 100 percent and do that in a very robust and sustainable way. Can you kind of walk me through the actual process and what it looks like? What happens from start to finish? What's the life cycle of an old battery that comes into you and what comes out the other end? So batteries come in to our facility and you know one of the first things we do is is sort them based on the type and size of battery and, and really the chemistry inside of the battery. And after we we sort them and, and put you know similar types of batteries together, we we can create almost different recipes in our process. You know, some of this type, some of that type. And as we start to create more pure and concentrated forms of the specific types of metals we then can create uh, new products and new intermediate products that are able to be used by battery manufacturers. How much of this involves humans and how much of it involves machines and, and automation and ro robotics? And I, I assume that some of this work is dangerous and you're talking high temperatures and maybe some toxicity here, but what, what's actually involved? Yeah, it, it's a mix of um, you know, manual and automated processing. And we, we've tried to, you know, I think, make an intelligent balance there, you know, given the, the ramp up and maturity of these different steps. There can be, I think, a temptation sometimes to over automate too soon. And, you know, that, that has its own pitfalls. We automate the parts of the process that, you know, may have more difficult aspects, you know, for a human to do, whether it's something that, you know, you'd have to wear more protection or something like that. So those steps we try and automate and, you know, have computers control. I have like a bag of just regular old batteries that I'm waiting to recycle. I'm waiting for like the special trash pickup day, you know. I probably recycle batteries a lot more now that I have pickup for it and I don't have to take them, you know, physically somewhere. How do you make this 
down the road as easy as possible from consumers for a Tesla owner for a you know whomever you're talking about now that EVs are are really really uh, booming. How do you make it as easy as possible for people? to buy into this? It needs to be extremely low friction and extremely easy. And today that's that's a big part of why everyone has this drawer full of batteries and devices. It's because it's it's complex. You have to drag them somewhere specifically and schedule a time and think about it. And people are too busy. They don't want to prioritize that. So we put a lot of thought into this and you know we're trying to find easier ways you know to make those something that people can drop in a return shipping box, you know, or, or, you know, maybe drop off in, you know, very, very convenient locations that you might already go on a regular basis, but make it something that's as easy as humanly possible to get those batteries back into material circulation. And do you anticipate that further down the road, there are going to be partnerships with companies like Tesla, with a GM uh, are going to be crucial or what what does that look like how you work with the actual manufacturers if at all so we do have you know good partnerships now with you know north american cell production companies both you know panasonic one of course but also envision and aesc who makes the nissan leaf battery we're also working with some large uh, consumer electronics companies today who who are kind of the creators of, of some of the devices and battery containing applications today we have a good partnership with amazon and also recently announced a partnership with specialized bicycles. The volume and ramp up of e-bikes is perhaps even more extreme than, than electric cars. But ultimately, I'd say it still remains to be seen a little bit how the automotive OEMs you know, will end up being involved in the end of life of the vehicles. Those batteries last a long time, as they should. And you know, it may be 10 years before they, they you know, find their way back to recycling. Is there a lot of innovation in this space? I mean, we certainly read a ton about Tesla and the EV market. And, uh, you know, I realize that you're dealing with all sorts of devices. Car batteries are just one piece here. But is there innovation in this space that you're seeing more and more of or not so much? Oh, there's a ton of innovation in this area. It's part of what makes it you know, so much fun from my point of view. It's a relatively new field. And, of course, mining has been around for centuries and millennia. But these are new materials, and they're sort of man-made materials, of course. So they require uh, quite a bit of innovation on how to process them efficiently at an industrial scale. You know, it's you know only in the last five to ten years that this whole market and, and you know associated problems have have kind of grown. You know, so it's a really interesting time where you know there aren't established you know, ways to do this. So we kind of you know, have this fun challenge of getting to invent it as we go and find the, the best ways and, and then improve upon those. I think a lot of people might be frustrated that uh, the tech world has kind of taken a while to start focusing on these issues in a serious way, or they might perceive it that way. You know, Silicon Valley has been making a lot of money on social media companies. And why weren't they tackling the biggest challenge that mankind has, climate change? It's actually been something that's in the works as we talked about, you know, there was a first wave of these kind of green tech companies that didn't really pan out. And I think a lot of that is because the science underlying the solutions to these problems, you know, is hard science. It's taken a while to master, you know, we've had materials scientists working on, you know, better materials to use for these things. And I think we're also starting to see kind of a snowball effect of 
the market in China, people are, are, are seizing on the opportunity to, to find better green solutions. And people are starting to realize there is a huge market for these technologies and big companies and profits can be made out of this. Yeah, I totally hear you. I think there absolutely has been a lot of frustration uh, with the dead ends that a lot of the earlier companies reached. And with the lack of, you know, real earth changing innovation, um, it was Peter Thiel, right, who said we wanted flying cars and instead we got 140 characters. No offense to Twitter. But now we're seeing flying cars. And guess what? They're electric and hopefully better for the environment than you know, traditional cars. So progress, right, Brian? Absolutely. If I get my flying car, I am willing to use sustainable concrete and cement at all times. <laughs> for all your for all your concrete projects? For all my building needs. That's right. By the way, Brian, happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day to you. How are you going to celebrate? I'm going to buy some concrete. Okay. Well, I'll plant a tree <laughs> in your concrete. <laughs> all right. I think that is it for today. Join us next time for more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is produced by Wyatt Orm and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds NYC. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold.